So in 2003, uh, for those of you who remember, we uh, invaded Iraq, uh, the coalition of the willing, uh, led primarily by the United States and Great Britain. There was a, uh, a very large invasion of our forces. And uh, for the first actually year or so, it really looked like it was going very well. Um, the goals of the invasion were uh, to combat global terrorism, Islamic extreme extremism, uh, to search out and secure any weapons of mass destruction, and to uh, liberate and oppress people from a tyrannical dictator. And that looked like it was going very, very well. Uh, you may remember the, uh, the photos in the newspapers from, I believe it was 2004, maybe 2005, the purple fingers of the people who had voted uh, in a real democratic election for the first time in their lives. Uh, you may recall uh, that Saddam Hussein, um, the dictator, was uh, toppled, and he was tried in court and sentenced to death uh, for his, the crimes that he'd committed against his own people. Uh, from the beginning, it looked as though the invasion of Iraq was going very, very well. Uh, the enemies that were there, prim primarily Saddam's Baathist forces and then uh, global jihadis who joined the fight in Iraq, were destroyed, mowed down in the first uh, part of the invasion. They uh, put up as m a good a fight as they could, but they were no match for the training, the superior equipment, and the superior numbers of the coalition forces. But they would not accept defeat. And so they reorganized. They adopted new tactics. They thought of a different way to fight. You may recall in 2006, the Battle of Fallujah. You may remember our friend uh, Corey Townsend, a uh, longtime youth pastor here at Coast, uh, now um, thinking about maybe PhD studies. Uh, he's just finished up his uh, master's in divinity. He was uh, on the ground at Fallujah. He was in combat. He was at the time in the, uh, the army, and he was tasked with door-to-door -door raids um, in the streets of Fallujah. It was a terrifying time for him. He saw things from which he has still not recovered. Why? Because Corey's unit was fighting an enemy that was not fighting by the same rules he was. In fact, Corey's enemy developed a new tactic, what we now call asymmetrical warfare. Symmetrical warfare is what you have in the Civil War, where two sides get in front of each other in long lines, and they point their guns at each other on a fair ground field, and the winner is the one who fights best. Asymmetrical warfare is when one side knows that it cannot compete with the training and the resources and the numbers of the enemy, and so they adopt a different form of combat, a combat that's in the dark, that's from the side, a combat that you don't see coming, a combat that's quiet, a combat with smiles on the face and knives in the back, a way to neutralize the advantages of the enemy, You might wonder about asymmetrical warfare. Where does it come from? Well, it, it's born out of frustration. Frustration that what's the goal isn't being accomplished, that there's disappointment, anger, failure, and so something new has to be tried. Asymmetrical warfare is designed for weaker powers that cannot fight head-to-head, toe-to-toe with their enemy. 
Asymmetrical warfare cannot be carried out in the daylight. And I use those words in quotes because you can do things during the day. But daylight in the sense of a fair fight, a fair battle where everyone knows who everyone is. The Nazis are in their uniform. The Allies are in theirs. The Nazis have swastikas and the Allies have American flags. And so you're you're able to tell who's who on the field. Asymmetrical warfare cannot be carried out in daylight because you'll lose. And so you hide yourself. You rely on ambushes, sniper attacks. Probably the paradigmatic example of asymmetrical warfare is the IED, the improvised explosive device, where a very cheap uh, bomb is placed or buried in the roadside, usually at night, outside of the uh, view of um, our army and marine forces. And then... As uh, an allied convoy or a coalition of the willing convoy moves through the street, the IED is uh, fired, and Marines and and Army men who have no ability to fight back are hurt and killed. Corey himself was hit by two IEDs in his tour. Asymmetrical warfare minimizes risk. You don't put your fighters out there because you can't afford to lose them. And asymmetrical warfare maximizes reward. You use high-value targets, and you take them out in ways that are scary and frightening, that strike fear into your larger and stronger foe, to break his will, to break his resolve, because you can't fight him toe-to-toe. Today's text demonstrates one, not the only, but one way that the enemy, Satan, fights. A way that Megan just talked about in her testimony. The enemy uses asymmetrical, spiritual warfare to achieve his ends. In this case, the murder of our Lord Jesus Christ, and in the present day, the destruction of the church. Let's stand and read the text from Luke 22, 1-6. It's on your note sheets, if you have them. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover. And the chief priests, that is, the leaders of the temple, and the scribes, that is, the religious lawyers, sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then Satan... Enter Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he, Judas, went his way and conferred with the temple leaders and the captains how he might betray him to them. And they were gleeful, glad, and agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray Jesus to them in the absence of the multitude. You may be seated. It almost feels in language like we're at night, in the dark, in the shadows. It seems as though one man breaks off from Jesus' group and scurries away, steals away at night to to deal with the religious leaders and the lawyers. We might think that this passage is about Judas. We might think that it's about the temple leaders and the lawyers. It's not. The protagonist of this passage is Satan himself whom we have not seen in the Gospel of Luke since chapter 4, nine months ago. In that text, in chapter 4, Satan tried something with Jesus. He tried to go toe-to-toe with the Lord. 
And he brings them out of the wilderness, or the Holy Spirit brings Jesus out in the wilderness, and, and, and Satan pounces on level field and says, here I am, Jesus, and I'm going to defeat you. And he tempts him three times, and every time Jesus has an answer and says, no, be gone from me. Get out of my sight. And finally, Satan realizes, I can't beat this guy toe-to-toe. He's too strong. He is the agent of the Most High God, and I do not have the weapons necessary or the resources to defeat the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what does he do? He says that he's going to wait for an opportune time. And then he scurries off the scene. And so now for 18 chapters in Luke... The devil himself has been behind the scenes encouraging and empowering demonic forces, hoping that every time they come against Jesus, Jesus will be overcome. And every time they fail. Demon-possessed people come up and Jesus casts the demons aside. Those who are oppressed with illness and sickness are set free and liberated from the things that are hurting them. At every point, the powers of darkness are wiped off the stage because Jesus is too strong. He comes with the power of the Spirit that cannot be defeated. And so now the devil, Satan himself, thinks the time is right. Now is the time for a different type of tactics, an asymmetrical spiritual tactic that can set Jesus down and win for the powers of darkness. And so he enlists Judas, Iscariot, the betrayer, We might wonder who Judas is. We've heard nothing of him in the Gospel of Luke. In Matthew, you'll hear that he's a greedy man, as in uh, John. But Luke hasn't mentioned him at all, except to say that he's one of the disciples. And so who is Jesus? What are his motivations? Well, if you just read this text, and that's all you have to think about Judas, it might sound strange. Then Satan entered Judas who was numbered among the twelve. It might sound as though Judas is just a good guy who's going along with Jesus, enjoys Jesus' ministry, is really excited and hopeful for it, and then he's he's walking down and and, and Satan jumps into him, takes control, like uh, we saw this movie, The Men's Ministry, back when we did things together, called, called Pacific Rim, which I strongly recommend that no one watch. But in it, there's giant robots, of course, and there's a little human who gets into the pilot seat of the robot and then sort of drives them around. And it might sound to us that that's a little bit like what happens with, with Judas, that Satan is, is, is looking around for a, an easy target and Judas is walking along, and then and Satan jumps in and takes control, possesses him, overcomes him. I want to suggest to you that's not what happens. In Acts, we hear again a little bit about Judas. Peter prophesies about him. After Judas has betrayed uh, Jesus, Peter says this in Acts 1, Men and brothers, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. And then Luke tells us that uh, uh, Judas had purchased a field with the the silver that he had been given by um, the the chief leaders of the temple. Uh, For it is written, Peter says, in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it. And in another place, let another take his office. And Peter prophesies, saying that these these Psalms, uh, they're Psalms 69 and Psalm 109, are really about uh, the confrontation between Judas and Jesus, and uses this uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit to speak truth about what ought to happen now. So he's describing who Judas was, um, 
that, uh, and, and, and then what should happen because of what Judas did. There's an interesting thing, though. If you look back at these psalms and, and you just read them as psalms, you notice that there, there are two psalms that are about uh, really an innocent or righteous sufferer. It's, it's sort of spoken from the point of view of David when he's in trouble, when he's in, in danger. And, and, he, and, he, and so he's crying out to God, saying, God, I, 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 these people, I thought they were my friends, and they stabbed me in the back, like Judas did to Jesus. And, and he calls out, and he says, God, in, in Psalm 69, they, they've poured sour vinegar in my mouth instead of good drink, like happened to Jesus. And, and God, I, I, I'm, so, I'm so upset about that. I, I wish that you would make their table, their, their, their table for eating, as though it were a trap, a snare that would catch them up into something that would end up destroying them. Which, if you take it from sort of the macro perspective, is really sort of what happens with the Last Supper, where Judas thinks that he has now a chance to get at Jesus. And so he thinks he's setting a trap for Jesus, but in fact God is setting a trap for the enemy. Interesting, a last interesting thing about Psalm 69 is that we find out that the, the, the innocent sufferer, uh, David, is being persecuted. These, these so-called friends who are now stabbing him in the back they're doing it because of his commitment to the holiness of the temple of all things. And David hasn't built a temple, but it, you know, your place, God, um, and that'll come to mean the temple. It says in Psalm 69.9, because zeal for your house has eaten me up. The reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Which is very interesting, because if you're following Luke's narrative, you know that just a few days before Judas's betrayal, Judas decides to betray Jesus, Jesus has done what? He's walked into the temple and he said, this is not a place for business. This is a place for prayer. And he kicks all the corrupt cheaters out and incurs the wrath of those who run the place. And that is the reason, that is the touchstone, the point, the reason why the leaders are out to get him. Because he's taken their good deal, the temple, and he's taken it away from them, exposed them for who they are and what they're doing to the poor and the dispossessed of Israel. And might it be, might it not be, that when Peter prophesies that this Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, that these do tell the story of Jesus and Judas, might it not be that Judas himself, who we know is greedy from Matthew and John, that Judas himself was walking along, thinking about how things were going to work out for him. He was going to be at Jesus' hand during the, the kingdom. He was going to get to be a prince and a ruler when Jesus starts taking over Jerusalem. And then Jesus does something that scares him. Because you, we all know, if you, if you want to be a... The reason you want to be in charge, the reason you want to run things, is for the money and the influence no one's, no one's in leadership because they want to help people. Okay, may, uh, Neil, Neil, Neil's in it. Neil's in it for the good. Neil's holy. But, but me, no, okay, all right. I, in my better days, I, I, I really am trying to, to serve God. But in general, in general, you know what I'm talking about. People want to be at the top because they want to control things and they want to have all the benefits that come from doing it. And maybe Judas is just like that. And so as soon as Jesus walks in the temple and kicks over the tables, he's like, whoa. This isn't the kind of kingdom I'm signing up for. 
I like the way they make money in the temple. My only issue with it is that I'm not the guy at the top receiving the taxes. Jesus, I was hoping that you were going to maintain the status quo and just change out the people at the top for you and your disciples. And then Jesus says things like, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and God that which is God's. And maybe Judas is thinking, I don't like that idea either. I would rather render the things with Caesar's name on it to myself. And imagine you're that sort of person. Imagine that you're the kind of person who's offended and disappointed and frustrated by someone else's zeal for God's house. Imagine that you've dedicated all of your time and your resources, your livelihood and your future to this man and his mission, and now you realize once and for all, finally and completely, that his mission, his goals aren't yours. You thought you were in it for the long haul, and you realize that you've been duped. You might be frustrated, disappointed, bitter. And I suggest to you that that's exactly how Judas felt, and that is exactly why he made such a patsy for the enemy. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in the Screwtape Letters, has this uh, great uh, scene. I feel like I use the Screwtape Letters a lot. I assure you, I do not take it as scripture. I just really like it. At any rate, uh, screw tape letters, there's a part where the premise of the book is that there's this devil that's being trained by like a senior demon on how to corrupt this man who uh, becomes a Christian. And one of the things that uh, the senior devil, t- uh, senior demon, tells the, the junior demon about how to do it is he's like, here's the problem. The problem is that God wants people focused on eternity on resurrection in heaven and what they have, the riches they have in God. Your job, your number one job, is to take their eyes off of that and set it on all the things they think they ought to have now, but don't. Right? So we as Christians, you know, we're, we're supposed to be eyes up, looking at the kingdom of God, his reign and his love, and yet what trips us up is when we start looking at all the things that we think we ought to have uh, or should get, but don't. And if we do that long enough, and if we do that consistently enough, what wells up in us is disappointment, frustration, bitterness. Exactly the sorts of things that are building up, welling up in Judas. And so when Judas is, is experiencing all these things, he starts to, to think, ah, this is, cr- this is wrong. I'm not getting what, I, what I'm supposed to have. God, you, you had promised me these things, and, and now you're giving me these things. And it's all because of Jesus. It's his fault. And at that moment, I suggest to you, that is when, quote, Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. This is not, this is not uh, jumping into the, the, the robot seat and, and taking over. Judas is ripe. He's ready. In fact, and honestly, what he really wants is a little more power and a little more courage and a little more willingness to do the dirty deed that needs to be done. 
Uh, I think we have good reason in the text for, for thinking this. All throughout Luke, whenever he talks about demonic power, like overpowering or taking control or possessing people, he uses different language. He does not use the language enter. In fact, that word enter is the same word that gets used in the Greek translation of Genesis to talk about Noah and his family entering the ark. If you'll remember, the way that the, the story goes, the ark has no door, or if it does, it's kind of open. And the word that's used, aserkamai, uh, uh, is just, just going through an open door. Very normal, very simple. It's inviting, I just want to step in. Now listen in contrast to the way Luke talks about uh, des- descriptions of demonic power. For he, Jesus, this is Luke 8, had commanded this unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had often seized him. And so the man was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles. He was driven by the demon into the wilderness. Listen also to Luke 9. And as he was still coming, this is a man who's been possessed by a spirit, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. This is the language of, of, of overtaking, of power. This is not the language of Satan entering Judas. And so I think we have a very good reason to think that Judas is a lot like Dr. Faustus, if you know Christopher Marlowe's play. Dr. Faustus uh, was an academic. I don't know how many times I have to warn you, but I'm going to do it again. Look out for academics. Those, they're sneaky, and they are, they're always ready to make a deal. I'm, I'm, I'm working on it, though. I'm doing my best to be faithful. At any rate, Dr. Faustus, he's a... Uh, He's an academic, and he's learned all these things about philosophy, and he gets to a point in his life where he just wants a little bit more. He's achieved all the secrets and the mysteries of the world, and he just can't get what he wants. And so what does he do? He conducts a seance. He summons powerful forces. And the devil walks in. And the devil says, I'll give you all the knowledge and power that you want. You've got to give me your soul. And Dr. Faustus says, yes. That sounds really good. Because my problem is not that I'm not getting what I want. It's that I can't get enough of it. And I need a little push, a little shove, a little bit more, a little bit more power to achieve the things that I think I ought to. And so we think of Satan as giving Judas the extra nudge, the extra power and confidence, the extra push to get what he wants done, done. And you notice that this is a gross, strange, bizarre, upturning of how the Holy Spirit works, who empowers us and gives us the extra nudge and the extra power to participate in God's freedom and his healing. What the Spirit does in Christ through the church in the light, Satan does through Judas in the dark. And their plot. This is asymmetrical spiritual warfare. You see, the, the, the chief priests and the scribes, they see that they can't take Jesus in the daytime. Why? Because they feared the people, Luke tells us. And, and they, they, they are looking for a time, and Judas is going to search out a time when he can take Jesus in the absence of the multitude. Jesus is strong every day in the temple when people come up to him and cannot, be, uh, cannot overcome him. His arguments are sound. His power is strong. And so the plot must take him from the side at night when he's weak and no one's there to protect him. And then think about what they intend to do to him. 
They're going to murder him, but they're going to do it in public, in a humiliating way. Why? Because they don't want any of his followers to think that it would be a good idea to keep following him. They want to deter him with their terrorist tactics. They want to strike fear into the heart of his followers so that they dissipate and run away and do not take up his banner after he's gone. In the darkness, they minimize their risk. And by taking out Jesus in such a way, they maximize the reward. This, my friends, is asymmetrical spiritual warfare. Asymmetrical warfare is designed in your note sheets. If you want to jot it down, you can. For a weaker power that cannot fight head-to-head with a stronger. A weaker power that cannot fight head-to-head with the stronger. The enemy, Satan, knows he's been right up in front of Jesus, and Jesus wiped him out, and so he had to go behind the scenes and wait for a more opportune time. Number two, it's often motivated by frustration over the inability to succeed. Judas is is right there, right on the cusp of everything he's ever desired. And he's not going to get it. And so he starts looking for another way to win. And I guess 30 pieces of silver is better than nothing at all. Number three, asymmetrical warfare cannot be carried out in the daylight. I put that in quotes. It can't be public. It can't be straight on. In fact, asymmetrical warfare is a lot like, if you remember in Jurassic Park, the way that Dr. Grant tells us that velociraptors work. You remember the scene where the young boy uh, is at the archaeological dig. In general, they don't let children there, but for the sake of the story, Steven Spielberg, very good. And he, and he gets the, the claw, the, the velociraptor claw, and he, and he, and he, and he says to the, the boy, he says, oh, you come to face-to-face with the velociraptor, and you think you've got him. And you think that if you just stay, stay still and stare him down, that, he, that he'll move away. But what you don't see, what you don't see, is his two friends who've moved to the side of you in the bushes. And the first thing you feel is the blood from where they've opened you up. And you know then that you're done. Because you thought you were in a different kind of fight than you are. That's warfare that's not in the daylight. And it's the warfare that Satan executes against Jesus. Number four, asymmetrical warfare minimizes risk. The the scribes and the chief priests, they know they can't take Jesus in front in the daylight. And they can't lose any of their numbers because they're already so small. If they're going to win against the multitudes, against the public, they have to attack in ways where they're not exposed, where they won't get lost. And number five, It maximizes reward. And by reward, in this case, it's the same power of an improvised explosive device in Iraq where fear, fear keeps people from wanting to execute their mission. There's no way the jihadis could stand up to the full might of the American military. But if they make us scared enough, if they deplete our willpower enough, if they deter us enough by what we see they've done to our friends, then they win by default. And they've maximized their reward. Well, that's one way that Satan works. 
And I think it's important to point out that it's also one of the ways God works. And this might sound a little bit nasty, but think about this. You think about this. Notice, remember we were talking about Psalm 96. And, and, and the psalmist David cries out and says, Make uh, their table a trap. Make my enemy's table a trap. So they're, they're sitting there and they think that they're having good food, but it's actually turning the tables on them. So that they're destroyed the way they're trying to destroy me. And Peter cries out later that this is prophecy over Christ and Judas. And maybe it's the case that that table was indeed a trap when Jesus had the Last Supper with his disciples and suckered the enemy into making the ultimate mistake. Maybe it was a trap. And maybe the end result of the trap looked like it had worked, that Jesus was on the cross and that God was foiled. But then in the end, in the power of the resurrection and the rule of the Spirit and the kingdom of God, God shows that the trap was really laid for Satan and that God himself was conducting asymmetrical spiritual warfare on the powers of darkness. It was like sacrificing the queen on the board to get checkmate. It was sending in your best hostage negotiator into the bank to set all the captives free. Just when the enemy thinks the trap has been sprung, the trap really gets sprung, and the enemy is caught once and for all. And if you agree with that, if you follow me on that, and if you think that, that in some ways God is conducting asymmetrical spiritual warfare against the enemy, when the enemy looks strong, God shows him to be weak, then you have to wonder, you have to wonder, we as Christians, are we meant, are we meant to adopt these same tactics in our Christian cultural wars, in not just the cultural wars, but in, in the wars that we fight spiritually here, in our families and in our community. What kind of people are we really being called to be? I mean, look, if God engages in asymmetrical spiritual warfare, then shouldn't we? And if so, what might that look like? Maybe we're being called, and you can find some pretty good verses to support this, you know, be ye as wolves among the sheep, right? Um, Maybe we're called to be clever and deceitful in our tactics against the powers of darkness and the culture at large. Maybe, and maybe you've noticed that the culture at large adopts these tactics against uh, those who believe, say, in traditional values and find ways to uh, isolate and, and, and topple and destroy from the side people who, who dare to stand up for the things that they believe in, say, the right to life for an unborn child the right to protect a certain view of what God has in marriage? Maybe you've noticed that the culture at large finds ways to come at you in the back and take you out and shut you up and scare the people who would defend you, lest they also raise their voice. Maybe you've noticed that the culture at large is a weaker power. They are a minority, if you take the numbers, and they can't fight head-to-head against the church of God and and the glorious truth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you've noticed that they're motivated by frustration, bitterness, anger, and hate over their inability to make you think what they want you to think. And maybe you've noticed that they're conducting warfare against us, and not in the daylight, but from the side. And maybe you've noticed that they minimize risk by staying anonymous as much as possible. 
Maybe you've noticed they seek to maximize reward by taking out popular voices in such a way that you're scared to stand with them the next time it happens. And maybe, like me, you're wondering, what do we do? Maybe we need to fight dirty too. Maybe we need to play the asymmetrical spiritual warfare game back. Imitate their tactics for the greater good. Maybe, on the other hand, we are being called to follow the way of Jesus Christ in our culture wars. You see, in order for God's asymmetrical spiritual warfare to work, somebody, namely Jesus, had to take it on the chin. Jesus stood out in public. He declared the truth of God. And when the time of the devil was right, he was seized. And he didn't fight. Put away your sword, Pete. This is what's got to happen. And he willingly walked to the cross to murder and death because he trusted that God would put it right. I ask this question because I honestly don't know. There are days when I see someone who runs a pizza joint or whatever who gets destroyed because they believe the Bible. And I think, I want to draw the long knives and find the people who got them and take them out. And then there's other times where I see someone graciously and humbly accepting self-sacrifice And I think, by the power of the Spirit, martyrdom too works. And so I leave this as an open question, because I really don't know the answer. A conversation I hope that will develop as we uh, increasingly become a part of the larger culture of Orange County. You've noticed that we were, uh, had a massive showing at the National Day of Prayer where we prayed for uh, the culture and things that are going on in the world. You'll notice that we're now um, more and more being a part of, of Obria and, and, and the battle for, uh, for life. You'll notice that we are taking stands in the culture. We are becoming more and more engaged, more and more fighting in the midst. of so We're starting to put our heads up. And it's going to come, it will come to pass that someone's going to try and kick them off. Knock them right off. It's going to happen. And the question is, how are we going to respond? How, what, are we, what are we going to be like? Who are we going to be? What sort of tactics, what sort of warfare are we going to be waging in the name of Jesus Christ and by the power of the Spirit? And I do not know the answer to that question. I think there is something to be said for the fact that, yes, God, too, uses asymmetrical spiritual warfare to get God's way. But I also think there is something to being the ones who take up their cross daily and accepting the cost of graciously and lovingly putting forward the truth, knowing very well that someone may cut you down. Regardless, we as a community must rely heavily on the power of prayer and the solidarity of the community of faith. Regardless of what tactics we end up embracing 
in the culture wars. We must be as one with those who stand up for the truth. We must protect them with our resources and our love and our care so that they know that regardless of what happens, their families will be safe, that they will be cared for, that they will not be cut off and adrift, that instead this church will stand behind them back to back to the hilt, long long knives drawn until the end of days. They must know that we are theirs and they are our family and that will never change. And we must cry out to God again and again in prayer that his power, that his power will rule and reign and that he will see the war put to its conclusion, its right conclusion, regardless of what we do. Friends, I don't know how to fight this spiritual war and I am admitting that I'm depending on the wisdom of the elders uh, and this community of faith Uh, and Neil to know what is right for us as we continue to walk in places where the enemy will set traps. Let us pray together and let us be reminded that the Spirit will not abandon us and that no matter what happens, the end is secure and the end is the resurrection of the dead. And in that, we can take comfort as we step out and through the midst of a war we often do not understand. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you, God, that the end is secure, that resurrection is the last word, that our eyes can be set not on the frustrations and the bitterness and anger of today and the things that we want but don't have, but instead can be set on the glorious coming of your kingdom, when we will be rich in spiritual riches beyond our imagination. God, we confess that the enemy is strong and crafty and cunning, that the enemy comes from the side and engages with a warfare that we're not always ready to fight. And God, we thank you that even when the enemy did that, you were cleverer You were smarter. You claimed the victory. We pray that you'll claim that now. We pray that your spirit will give us wisdom as we attempt to sort out what kind of warfare we must engage in. As we seek to be faithful to your truth, loving as your son was loving. God, make us again and again your people, your family, solid, one, unified, And raise up our prayers. Pull them from our throats, God. That we might call out to you for your justice to be done. Your truth to be proclaimed. Your grace and your forgiveness to be known far and wide. We thank you, God, for what you've accomplished in Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen.